Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 67 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I chatted with Dr. Matthew Roller, a professor of classics at Johns Hopkins University. His research and teaching range widely over the history, literature, philosophy, and art of ancient Rome. His current large-scale project investigates aristocratic competition in the early Roman Empire, particularly in the realm of oratory and eloquence. He has authored three books— Constructing Autocracy, Aristocrats and Emperors in Julio-Claudian Rome, Dining Posture in Ancient Rome, Bodies, Values, and Status, and Models from the Past in Roman Culture, A World of Exempla. He has also written numerous articles, chapters, and shorter studies. In 2023, he is serving as president of the Society for Classical Studies, the National Professional Association for Classicists. In this episode, we chatted about how a slow culture shift in acceptance for double majoring in STEM and humanities, how to define monumentality, cultural memory, and their relationship to each other, and dove into the practice of gift-giving in ancient times and the various meanings behind them. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon, and I just wanted to start you off with what I hope will be a very nice, easy question to ease into things, which is, how did you get into classics and ancient history? Where does this love start for you? Um, Yeah, well, I remember that when I was in fifth grade, I had to do a report on the Greek alphabet. And and I remember making up a big poster board with pictures of all those funny looking letters. And uh, that didn't go anywhere in particular then. But for some reason, that sticks with me at the time I had to do the report on the Greek alphabet when I was 10. Um, but I think the real story, I went off to college um, being very much a, uh, in the 1980s, being very much a uh, natural sciences, engineering, STEM kind of focused person. Um, but I, uh, uh, at, at a certain point, um, took a, an elective course, uh, I, I taken a 
Back in those days, in the 1980s, many universities had um, a required freshman kind of core curriculum that typically in those days was called something like Western civilization, right? So I did one of those and um, was in a section with a classics professor, and um, he was very interested in in uh, Plato and Aristotle, and we had a lot of discussion about um, classical Greek philosophy. And that caused me the next year when I had a, a humanities elective that I needed to take, I signed up for a Greek history course because I, I'd gotten interested in the department. And then once I did that, I um, realized I had an opportunity to start ancient Greek language. And having just done a semester or a quarter, actually, in that institution of um, of ancient Greek history, I suddenly felt that it was, I felt a very strong urge to um, start the study of the language. And at this point, I was, I was a physics major. Um, and I was doing, you know, at that point, modern physics and starting on quantum mechanics and some of these sort of higher level uh, courses in the undergraduate physics curriculum. But there's actually a, a, a it's not just about the draw. It's also about. <laughs> it's, it's also about the the um, uh, maybe you could say the repulsion um, created by by other options. So uh, I remember having a real struggle uh, with uh, quantum mechanics when I was a junior, uh, which is a very counterintuitive field. You you feel like Newtonian mechanics is about the world of throwing balls and sliding things down ramps and planets orbiting and it's 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 intuitive uh the world of quantum physics is very much not intuitive and i was very much struggling with some material i went to office hours to my professor's office hours and um at a certain point he looked me in the eye and he said if you need to be taught at this level you will never be a physicist and you know one question you could ask is what's the job of a professor? But I didn't think to ask that. I thought, oh my God, I'm just not good enough to be a physicist. But meanwhile, I was really enjoying studying ancient Greek. And so I thought, well, I, I changed directions and I uh, decided to double down kind of late in my career. I was able to piece together enough credits to be a classics major instead of a physics major. Um, and, uh, and that um, uh, and I began studying Latin also because that's what one did. That's just how the discipline was put together. So I did Greek and Latin and, um, and then, um, went off to a PhD program. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I took to it and I, I felt a, a real enthusiasm for it and I had no regrets. But there's, there's one more footnote. When I was in graduate school, I had a roommate for a couple of years who was a PhD student in physics. And I told him the story I just told you about about my professor of quantum mechanics and this this roommate of mine who was himself completing a PhD in physics. He howled with laughter and he said, nobody ever understands quantum mechanics when they're undergraduates. When you're a PhD student, you come around and you do quantum mechanics again and you still don't understand it. So that that was so so his view was that I I had given up without good cause. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that was my path untaken. The 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 physics major I never completed because I I couldn't really handle quantum mechanics as a junior. Um, 
So that there was that repulsion that went along with the attraction of of wanting to to dig deeper into the the kind of fascination I had with at that point uh, ancient Greek society and um, and Greek thought and literature. I'm like both so impressed. I'm so impressed that you even had or had the makings of a potential physicist i mean it's so cool i don't i don't that's one of the more unique stories that i've heard um and and it's it's actually yeah i mean if you don't feel bad that you kind of turned around and then just sort of reoriented everything then i don't think anyone should feel bad but at the same time it's like oh you could have at least maybe been a double major and then been like doubly as awesome because then you can say yes i have you know, I'm physicist and a classicist, you know, that's a, a a cool double combination. But I guess like it's it's interesting that that you ended up going into the, the, the more Roman side of things, because I would have thought maybe potentially because of your interest in in, in science, you would have gone into like studying Archimedes and become like an expert on Archimedes or something. So, you know, because you didn't take that path, which I think people would have been like, Oh, well that would have made sense. Like, how did you then go about finding your specialty? And did you have a moment where you were like, Oh, I could study like ancient science. Or was that, was that just like long gone? The boat has sailed. Didn't want to do that. There's there's about five things I want to say to what you just said. Um, The first is just that back in the 1980s, it wasn't that common for people to do double majors. Um, I knew people who were doing, pursuing double majors as undergraduates in that era, but they were somewhat unusual. And it's a very different world now. Uh, most of the students around me here at Johns Hopkins, it feels like most of them have double majors. But I think what's really going on is that a great, a large number of humanities majors also have a STEM major. So the culture has shifted, but the institutions have also shifted to make that more accommodatable in different kinds of ways. And I think that's a great thing. I look at these students because there are students who are classics and physics majors. And I think, you know, a generation later, I would have had a, a somewhat different experience, I think. Um, as as for studying ancient science, ancient technology, um, you, you know, I thought about that. I, I thought, I wonder if I have a special, you know, kind of potentiality to do that kind of work. Um I think that what happened there was when I went off um, to do PhD work, I, I've, I, I went off with the view, not that I had my own agenda, but that I was still very new to this field and I needed to learn the field. And so I was willing to kind of sit back and let let other people drive the bus and I was riding on the bus. So I took the seminars that were offered and I did the exams that were required and so on and so forth. And the PhD program I was in did not really have on the faculty a specialist in ancient science or technology. It just wasn't part of of the, the faculty at the University of California at Berkeley back in those days. And so I, I didn't really have a chance to engage with that work at the graduate level. Um, but I found the other work that was available and the other projects that were opened up to me to be very engaging. And um, my fellow students were wonderfully um, engaged and enthusiastic people. And um, I'm still 
close to uh, a certain number of my uh, uh, graduate student cohorts. Um, uh, so, so that leads me to just another point. It's fun to be a classicist precisely because you can be a dilettante. Um, we define the field so that really everything from the Bronze Age down to about the 6th century CE, if it's in the Mediterranean basin writ large, which goes all the way over to Mesopotamia and all the way up to Scotland, right? Um, and all the way to the sources of the Nile, the Mediterranean basin writ large, anything that happens in that time period in that region is fair game. So if you like ancient literature, it's yours. You like ancient philosophy, it's yours. You like art, you like archaeology, it's yours. Ancient technology, great. Language, linguistics, whatever. You can do anything you want and it all counts as classics. And um, had I gone into a more modern field, I would have had to be one of those things, right? But, but as long as it's in the ancient world, I can skip around and I've done that. I've, you know, produced scholarship and taught on ancient literary texts and poetry and prose and historiography and epic. And I've studied uh, Pompeian wall paintings and sculpture and thought a lot about that and gone into storerooms of museums and taken lots of photographs. And uh, I've gotten deep into some strands of ancient philosophy. And right now I'm going down a number of rabbit holes relating to Roman law, which is an area, it's a huge area that I've really known very little about. Um, so, you know, I've been around here for a while, but there's always something new. There's always some new thing I can do because it's classics. So that's my story about why I like classics. You can be a dilettante and it's okay. In fact, people even think that's a good thing. Well, no wonder I fit in then when I declared classics as my major freshman year. I was like, well, I will just be a dilettante in my own corner then. And it's great. Um, I'm sorry. I had one thing I didn't say. You asked me how I wound up doing more Roman style work with the origins kind of in, in an interest in Greek. And again, this... This was a footnote to the point I made about my going to graduate school and deciding to sit back and let other people drive the bus for me. Um, when I was a, a, a graduate student at, at Berkeley, the rule was that new students had to pursue a master's degree in the language or literature in which they were weaker in order to bring it up to speed. And then they would enter the PhD program. So having come in with a lot more Greek than Latin, I began by doing a Latin master's degree. And it turned out that, that doing doctoral level work in that material, the doctoral level work itself was so exciting and engaging that it just swept me away and I never looked back. And that happened to a lot of people at Berkeley. They would come in and start doing their master's degree part of their program in their weaker culture. And then that would take over and they'd wind up, it was not uncommon for people to wind up really in a very different place from what they came in intending to do, just because of this funny little rule that the program had. Wow, that's fascinating. Do you know if they still have that rule? I don't. I'd have to go dig around on their website and see how the program is set up. Most doctoral programs in classics are, are kind of 
uh, they're they're a single kind of homogenized process where there's a five or six year progression and you do this and this and this and there isn't even a master's degree it's it's just it's um you go straight to a phd there might be a moment where you're given a master's degree as a courtesy but at least in those days in those days at that institution there was a formal master's degree you had to complete and it was assumed that you would be successful and would then proceed to the doctoral program. But they reserved the right to throw you out after the master's degree if they didn't think that you were performing well. I don't think I ever saw that happen to anyone. But it was a kind of a quasi-serious step. They had built the master's degree into the program as a, as a, a kind of a checkpoint and that meant that I could go through commencement and I got to wear one of those master's robes with the really long floppy sleeves. And that was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed my master's commencement and I remember it more than I remember my doctoral commencement. Interesting. I want to go and I want to look up that program. I mean, I just graduated with a master's like a week ago. And the thing is, because I did mine abroad, I did mine in Greece, they didn't it was sad. They didn't make a big deal out of it. So our ceremony, there's no caps and gowns. And then you just show up in whatever you look nice. And then it was a bit sad. I was like, Oh, I don't even get a, to be, you know, the little master's hood or anything. No, no, they just, um, it's very simple. It was very fast. I remember sitting there being like, Oh, this is going to be like a somewhat longer commencement, right? No, it was like half hour tops. And it, so our like keynote, commencement speaker was our a professor and she spoke for like 10 minutes and we we're like oh that's it okay so yeah then they just called our names and then our degrees were handed to us on a normal piece of paper and it was very ceremoniously unceremonious and unpretentious and uh then that was it and they were like okay so you're graduated congratulations let's go out get some pictures and then you're done European universities don't really do commencement the way American universities do. And and people imagine that the way we do it is because it's the way the Europeans do it, right? But we completely made it up. It's all fabricated. It's all it's all a bunch of neo-monastic nonsense. I mean, <laughs> there were there were never scholarly monks who paraded around. Um anyway. Uh, so yeah, Europeans don't have time for that. And most students don't even go to their commencement. They're done. Yeah, it's it's true. And I was I was so shocked by it. But you know what? It was a good wake up call. Although I think from what I, my friend said, um, there's a bit more sort of ceremony for bachelors and then for PhD. There actually is a more. Th but yeah, they said at the master's level, they were like, no, they they really just don't care. They're like, here you go. Like have fun. Um, and, you know, as someone who I was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to really get a PhD, maybe in the future, I'd like to, but I haven't found anything I'm like passionate enough about to spin into a PhD dissertation yet. So it might be a few more years, but I said, you know, if this is, this is it for my education, if this is all I'm going to get, it's, it was like happy, but also a little sad that it didn't have much ceremony. So I'm like, I'm kind of tempted to do another master's just so I can get an actual nice graduation. But that's kind of stupid. I shouldn't do that. Hey, that that's a little extreme to subject yourself to two more years of master's level work just so that you can go through the commencement. I know. I know. I was like, oh, the, 
I think that's one of those things where they would clearly log it under the, this is a really terrible idea for like two second payoff. Are you sure you want to do that? And then the answer for most normal people is, no, you're right. I don't think I'll go through all of that work and the stress and then having to write a whole nother thesis. Yeah, that would be, that would be a lot just to, you know, get five seconds of fame walking across the stage in a robe. Do I get to ask what your thesis project was? Sure, sure. So I did my thesis on, well, the program I went to is actually a modern political science program. So my degree is in Southeast European studies. It's a specialization on the history, politics, and economics of the Balkans and Greece. And so I, within that, I took an amazing class on contemporary Turkey. And I'd always had an interest in nationalism issues and cultural heritage. So I went to my advisor and I somehow spun it into writing about nationalist cultural heritage policy in and comparing the Ataturk period with the Erdogan period using Hagia Sophia as my case study. And I wanted to talk about the religious iconographic changes on the building and how it was a symbol of a tutorial. And so somehow he was like, sure, sure, I'll let you write that. And I was like, this is the most like broad giant. I was, I mean, I was shocked that he, he let me do it because I was like, I don't actually know how I'm going to weave in all of these elements because I started writing and it seemed like it was something for a classics degree. And I was like, well, I can't have it all historical. What do I do? So I brought in modern cultural heritage issues and he, he somehow was like, we'll take it. Well, it's, it's certainly a live topic. I mean, it's been within the last, I, to, to my knowledge, just within the last couple of years that Erdogan has started to be talking about, you know, whether he will <laughs> sort of al allow Christian rituals to still be carried out in, in that space. Um, of course, it's not really a church. Maybe part of it is still a church. Of course, it's a mosque. I, I, I can't remember. But he is still based in Istanbul, right? Well, I don't, I don't know where, where the patriarch does his. His, does his stuff in in Istanbul? I shouldn't say anything because I don't know. You probably know. Um, I I kind of I, it's funny. I, I avoided a lot of the Greek Orthodox stuff, and I I actually only talked about um, like Islam and how Islamic like iconoclasm affects monuments and cultural heritage so it was it was very centered on on that and 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 it was funny because i never thought i would really go back to iconoclasm but my last year as an undergrad i took a class on byzantine art and it instantly became one of my favorite classes because we covered iconoclasm and then i got super in the weeds and then went down all these rabbit holes and was like ah this is the coolest thing to study um, and so it was funny during my Turkey class, I kept repeatedly bringing up and tying things I was learning in with that concept. And my professor, I remember he was just like, why are you using an ancient art historical concept in my class? He's like, this is modern politics. And I was like, because it's connected, it's inherently connected. Exactly. It works. And so he was like, okay, well prove it to me. So I would have to read and come back to him and, and, and make my case. And so I think that was partly why he probably said, fine, you can, you can write a, your thesis on this. Cause I think he was even curious at the end about how I was seeing the connections. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I want to thank him all the time for letting me do this because uh, I realized it was super ambitious 
And my thesis, unfortunately, was so short that I definitely know I didn't have enough time to delve into everything with, you know, the depth that I wanted to. But I got enough that it ended up being a, a decent thesis, I hope. It's fine for an MA, and that's that's where you are, so. Exactly. Although it was, it was really flattering to hear him say I had enough material gathered that I could have turned it into a dissertation, into something longer. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, well, I have more there for the future, but I'm not sure I would want to do that because um, when you're playing with modern Turkey, I was kind of like, I, I asked him several times whether he thought I could get banned from going to Turkey for writing these uh, these things in my thesis. And he said, well, the good news is you will not probably get banned from Turkey because not enough important people will read your thesis. And I said, you know what? It's fine. I'm fine with that. Well, thank you for the description. Sorry to sidetrack you, but I, I'm, uh, I often find I find other people's work and projects far more interesting than my own, in large part because they're new to me, right? Yeah, well, no, you know what? I can, luckily, uh, getting on on the topic of my thesis is is actually the perfect segue you've provided me because what is Hagia Sophia other than it's a giant Christian and Islamic monument and it lives very deeply in the memory of both the Greeks and the, the Ottomans, the Turks. And um, I know a lot of your work is done on, I mean, now granted, much more ancient, but the relationship between both of those things, monumentality and memory. Um, so I'm just going to segue that right into, I did a sort of modern version. So can you talk about the more ancient version that you've been working on? I mean, is that the concept of monumentality as a whole? Are you looking at specific things? And what do you mean by memories of the memory, the cultural memories of people? Or yeah, how do you define yeah. that? These are, these are all complicated terms and concepts. Um, the, 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 the whole topic of monumentality and memory is, is one that's been around for a good long time. I'm, I'm in no way, shape or form an, an inventor of, of the core concept. I think, um, Many people, when they begin talking about this topic, they go back to a kind of a classic study by uh, a French sociologist called Pierre Nora, um, a, a project um, that, that he carried out in the 70s and 80s and wrote up in a big four-volume set. But it was about, it was about um, what he called places of memory, lieu de mémoire, that had to do with the construction of the identity of modern France. And um, whether you care about the identity of modern France or not, um, the, the, the kind of riveting part is the notion that there are places where um, memory, and what that means we have to think about, gets sedimented into the place or into the buildings or, or into the, the land that is there, and it becomes a place that is... Um, that is meaningful for people in terms of thinking about their um, their uh, social and cultural uh, attachments, their their identity, if you will. Um, so, so that's kind of one of the foundational um, studies that I think launched across a lot of disciplines, not just in classics, uh, an interest in thinking about um, how 
really how how understandings of the past how how people understand the relation between their own world and um and the past <laughs> and that past may be not the real past it may be a past that's been constructed for their consumption or they may construct it for their own consumption but but it's it's about understanding how people relate their present circumstances to some putative past and what the medium is by which that understanding is is communicated maybe the first thing i'd say is an obvious kind of monument and this is monument writ very large would be a, a historical narrative right somebody writes a history book and from my point of view i would say a a, a text that describes past actions is a kind of monument um, in latin monumentum the word underlying monument Monumentum is is something that uh, that uh, reminds you. It's from the verb moneo to warn or remind. So a monumentum is something that warns or reminds you. And obviously, if you take that very largely, then a text is such an object. But you can also imagine how buildings or or um, anecdotes that people tell um, or marks on your body or um, uh, configurations of the landscape uh, there's a million things that could be taken to be some kind of transmitter of uh, of information about the past to the present in ways that that help people to understand or cause people to believe something about how they relate um, where, about how they relate to the society they're in and how their social group is is um, created uh, and sustained so I used the example of a historical narrative but it's full of stories about you know things that were done in the past and they're selected by someone to create a certain kind of image and if you read that then you have a perhaps a story that makes you think ah i am this kind of person and these people are my community or my kin and we share this thing and our forebears shared that thing and so so that monumentum the text becomes a way of relating your identity construction in the present to to um events or practices or people in the past uh so that that's a kind of a a, a quick response when we talk about memory we're not talking here about individual memories like i remember when i was six or i remember when i was 10 i did a report on the greek language on, on the greek alphabet um, these are, are what are sometimes called cultural memories, which are basically stories or understandings that are passed down across, um, across spans of time greater than one person's lifetime. Okay. So they go beyond the possibility of living memory and into the realm of transmitted stories or information that, that, that have to be mediated, right? Because if you don't remember it in your own head, somebody has to tell you, or they tell you that their grandparents told them, or somebody wrote it down and you read it. 
um, or somebody built something and you can go look at it and say, ah, that building was built then for this purpose. Um, so once you get to the point where that information about the past is being mediated through, basically it has to get outside one person's brain, then we're in the world of monuments. But it's a very different kind of memory. See, it's not what I remember. It's information about the past that is kind of being passed along across um, across generations. And then you have to worry about how that information changes over time. Um, just, you know, witness, as always, kinds of endless disputes about how we teach American history. Right. Is, is it a is it a, a narrative of an of an ever improving society and an ever greater kind of a rising arc sort of story? Or is it is it a story where we stress our failings and our um, our perpetual blind spots? Um, how much do we lean on slavery? Um, do we tell a story where slavery ends with the Civil War and we're good after that? Or that, you know, racism ends with the Civil Rights era and we're good after that? Or do we tell a story where these are episodes in a perpetual struggle? And and these are hugely contested, but all of this is about monuments and memory, really. It's about how we understand ourselves as a community based on the stories we tell about ourselves in the past. And our understandings of where we came from and how we got here. That's so fascinating. I mean, it's so fascinating. I mean, and as you were talking, especially about the memory thing, because I, I, I'm very curious about cultural memory and, and collective memory stuff. Uh, not enough to to be able to, you know, I'm no expert, so I can't really um, do a deep analysis of those things. But it, what it sounds to me like is it's really like the exciting study of something starts something historical, something narrative. And then it basically makes its way down through the giant, um, like it's like a giant game of telephone, right? Like, okay, it's retold. It's retold. What are people saying? Yeah. It's like, what are people saying? And does it get to, you know, the modern community? And then does it sound this like similar or is it completely different? And on the one hand, I suppose looking at the the Greek side of that isn't that basically what Homer's work is. We're not even sure who this person was. Was it one person? Was it many people? And then working with ancient cultures like ancient Greece and Rome, where a lot of the history was oral, and so most of these things they're sung, they're told, they're not written down. Um, you know, so have they? They definitely have changed in the years, but we don't know how much. So that's what it sounds like to me. But I like the telephone al analogy. That's my favorite. There's one. There's one maybe uh, uh, small nuance I'd make about the telephone analogy, which I think is good. But you sometimes get a monument that was erected for some reason, and in later years, it's forgotten what it meant or why it was erected and other stories get spun up to try to make sense of it. And, and so even, even the monument itself is not locked in time. What it's made to mean is constantly changing. So just, just a very trivial example um, on my own campus here at Johns Hopkins, there is a kind of a modernist sculpture that was erected probably in the 1960s that is, it's very abstract 
Um, but it's, it's a sort of an aspirational thing that has kind of pointy things that sweep up. Um, but there's no caption on it. It's just there. Um, I came to learn eventually, and one can find out that there's a particular sculptor who sculpted it and, and the piece is called Dove. And if you look at it and kind of squint from a distance, it does, you know, vaguely resemble a very kind of abstract, very large Dove. But it has two big pieces that are locked together. And um, the story that gets told here, you know, the campus tours on all campuses, there are people who kind of walk around backwards and they lead people on tours. You know, the high school juniors come with their parents to tour the campus. And um, the story that gets told about this sculpture is that it is a um, it's a combination of a giant comma and a giant wrench and they're fitted together and they represent the humanities the comma and the sciences or engineering the wrench and they're put together and they're fit together and it's a visual metaphor of the mission of the university and the ideal of bringing together um what we might call technical or scientific work with humanistic learning and th this is this is the meaning that is given to this, right? So the sculpture meant one thing, but the people looking at it have decided that it means something else. And, and they have an explanation for why it means. So that would be an example of, of uh, uh, that this is one where we can at least recover the original meaning, but but you know you can imagine one where the object is such that you can't recover the original meaning, and then it just becomes a Rorschach test, and every generation can decide for itself what the thing means, and so you can keep reconfiguring your understanding of the past. You can make the past into what it needs to be to authorize the community you want now. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's super interesting. And I, I do love how the, you, you gave me a more contemporary example as well. Um, because I think when you started to talk, I, I immediately, my mind just jumped to sort of, okay, ancient monuments that I suppose, you know, they had their intended purpose. And that in the modern era, some people, I, I can't mention who because I don't actually know who believes this truly, but... You know, I was my mind, I think, jumped to something like the pyramids because we have evidence and then it's a nice big tomb. And then we have people out here saying it's a giant grain silo and then they choose to believe that. And then, um, you know, we might have a future generation of people who believe it was basically a big storage room. I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but um, that's a interesting deviation that i suppose telephone pulled its way way out there uh yeah the older things are the the more i think they can function that way um you're probably familiar there there's to go back to an ancient monument there's there's a very famous um um uh, uh statue of the emperor marcus aurelius on a horse and it's it's bronze statue and it's gilded and it's sat on the on the Campidoglio, the, the the kind of main hill in the middle of the big piazza there that Michelangelo designed and it sat there for a very long time and it's since been moved indoors and a replica has been set up um, which is good but uh, 
it's very rare for such a big piece of work to survive from antiquity. And as far as we know, it's always been above the ground. But the secret was the early Christians thought that it represented the emperor Constantine. So they left it intact. They didn't melt it down or break it up. Um, so from their point of view, there's an emperor on a horse, and the only emperor who matters is Constantine. Therefore, it's Constantine, right? So that's a, that's a much more constrained example. They weren't too far off, but they were just far enough off that it made a real difference for the monument. But it also made a difference in how they understood themselves as a community. They thought that at that point, someone was, you know, already commemorating that emperor in this way. And that became an important moment and point of authorization for themselves as a new community, as a new religious community. And they were totally wrong, but it didn't matter, right? Who's going to tell them they're wrong? There's nobody around who's going to say, no, sorry, that's actually Marcus Aurelius. You're two centuries too, too late, right? <laughs> well, I mean, how fortuitous for the monument, uh, it's, it's physical survival then. What a, what a happy error that was. Um, so, okay. The other thing that I saw, I forgot where I read it, but I read it somewhere, but I saw that you were interested in the idea of reciprocity and social exchange in ancient Roman times. And those are two very modern concepts that have a very modern meaning. And I think I speak for a lot of people when we say, well, is the meaning the same in ancient times or does that look completely different from sort of the, the, the image that would pop up in my head if you were to just tell me those words now? Yeah, there's always this issue of um, the language we use to talk about things in the present in our own language and the terms that are available in the the target culture that we're talking about, in this case, an ancient culture. But certainly, um, you know, an abstract noun like exchange or reciprocity, those are actually both perfectly good Latinate words. They're English words that are spun up off of Latin stems, but they're not Latin words. You'll never find... You know, you'll never look in a dictionary and find the Latin noun reciprocitas. It won't be there, right? This is a bit of a shorthand. When we say reciprocity and exchange in, in certain kinds of academic circles, it makes our audience or some people in our audience think of a certain body of theory of a certain set of scholars and a certain sort of set of approaches to analyzing societies that actually has its roots in anthropology in the um, late 19th to mid 20th century. And there was a time when it was common for um, um, ethnologists to kind of go off and live live among the people in uh, in the culture that was being studied and uh, try to understand how the society worked. And um, famous examples of this were uh, an anthropologist in the early to mid 20th century called Malinowski, um, who did big studies of, um, of uh, societies in the Southern Pacific, the island societies, and how they traded. And he got very interested in um, 
the protocols of visiting because it, it took some it took some doing to visit another island. You had to get your boats together and they were very long journeys sometimes. And you brought lots of gifts. And so then you'd give the gifts and you'd receive gifts. Then you'd sail off again. And there would be these great cycles where very slowly over time, you know, these communities would send representatives around among the islands exchanging um uh, various objects, but but including um, particular um, shells that were considered to be very high prestige, and and like uh, kings would be would gift prestigious shells to one another, and some of them were very old and right. Part of their story, like in Homer, is all the people who'd who'd had it before it came to you. Um, but all of that is obviously about building relationships, and it's also about exerting power. Right. If you give someone something for which they feel gratitude to you, um, you have some kind of power over them. Uh, uh, but you've also linked yourself. If you give someone a gift, there's going to be some expectation somewhere, maybe down the line, that they 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 have gratitude to you. They'll they'll give you something back. Um, so there's social power relations, and there's also ways of of building and creating social connections that are kind of built into this whole apparatus. When I describe it that way, you can then see how it really applies to any society, right? And actually, um, Malinowski was helpful for thinking about uh, Homer in the middle of the 20th century. There are people who said, you know, gosh, when we hear, you know, that Glaucus and Diomedes exchanged armor and this armor that Diomedes gave Glaucus, he said, came to him from so-and-so and it was made by somebody else. And that, that sounds just like these kinds of exchanges, you know, among, among uh, leading men in, in this or that um, contemporary society. Uh, so, so this is how it begins to apply to ancient societies. I'm willing to bet that there's probably not a society on earth where people don't give gifts and receive gifts and then feel guilty if they can't give back the right sort of thing in the right sort of time frame or feel embarrassed if someone gave them something that was too much or feel embarrassed if they gave something that was too little. All those dynamics, I think they're just universal. Um, but they're all ways that, that we build and maintain and attempt to adjust our relationships to one another. So that that was the angle I was taking in studying um, um, certain questions in like Roman society, was think, thinking about ex descriptions of things being given and received and descriptions of people saying, I owe, what do you owe? What does it mean to say I owe? There's lots of different theoretical frameworks for like classifying types of exchange. The simplest one that I like is the distinction between, ready for this, what's called commodity exchange, which is basically money, okay? It's price setting. Um, you know, I want this book and you want $24.95, okay? So I give you $24.95 and you give me that book. And it's a price setting regime commodity exchange, we say this thing is worth the same as that thing. Two objects are defined as having the same worth, and you just hand them over one person to the next, right? You get your $24.95, I get my book, boom. 
The alternative is, or, or the, the contrasting regime is called gift exchange. And what that means is that the objects aren't equivalent. And they're also not traded at the same time. But I give you a present on your birthday. Okay? You don't pay me for it. You don't give me anything back. I give you a present. Well, I'll have a birthday and maybe you give me a present. Or maybe you have a dinner party and invite me over later, right? But you won't do it tomorrow. It would be really weird if I gave you a birthday present and then you invited me to dinner tomorrow, right? That would be very strange. It's like, what? what? Um, so with gift exchange, it doesn't happen instantly. There's a lag of time. I give a gift and if there's a counter gift, it'll happen later, maybe in a different context. It'll be a different kind of object. It may not be a thing. It may be a service like a like a an invitation to dinner. And in the meantime, you owe me. And we have this kind of relationship because we're bound by that gift and by the tension between the gifting and the... And then when you invite me to dinner, I don't sit there and think, okay, we're done, right? I gave you a gift. You invited me to dinner. We're, we're clear. We're done. No. Now I think, oh, what am I going to do for her next time? So you get into this dynamic of back and forth, and it creates this relationship. So gift exchange, your objects aren't commensurable, and they happen at different times. Different kinds of objects move at different times, and they bind the people together. Commodity exchange, the objects are commensurable. They're worth the same. The book is $24.95. $24.95 is the book. You and I have no relationship. I give you the money. You give me the book. We're done, right? I don't have to invite the salesperson to dinner. We're just done, right? So, so th these are the two regimes. Commodity exchange makes the objects the same. Transaction happens all at once, but the transactors remain independent. Gift exchange, the transactors are dependent on one another. The object are not commensurable, and they move in different ways at different times. That was a little chaotic, but that's just an example of the way people think about different ways exchange works to create relationships or not create relationships. I mean, it's fascinating. And it got me thinking, OK, where have I seen something like this um, portrayed in the ancient world? And it was really funny because my brain just jumped to have you seen the HBO Rome series? I've seen snippets. I'm, I have to I'm embarrassed to say I did not sit down and like really watch the thing. I'm, I'm not actually such a good person on 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 um, popular culture and classics. I, it's it's a it's a weakness in my in my um, configuration. I'm afraid it's really long, and it is one of those beautiful series where it's dirty and gritty and violent, and a lot of people just don't want to sit through that. So I know plenty of classicists who have not watched Rome or anything else, just because these things do tend to be portraying slavery and rape and some of these horrible things that were very common in the ancient world, and they just choose not to. So um, I would... No, that's what we need to watch, though. That's the thing. One thing that's great about modern reconstructions is to try to we're always all trying to fill out all the gaps, right? That's what we're doing. We've got snippets and we're trying to fill in gaps. We're all doing that. That's what scholarship is, about filling in the gaps. If somebody's making a movie, they have to fill in all the gaps, right? You can't just like leave a gray spot because you don't know what it looked like, 
right? People would say, what's that weird gray spot hovering around? It's like, oh, well, we just didn't know what that thing looked like, so we didn't portray it. You can't get away with that, right? You have to make something that looks believable. So I'm actually a huge believer in historical reconstructions, even if they're fantastic, they're really interesting. So when you were describing the idea of exchange, I was thinking, well, there is, it may have been one of the clips you've seen from Rome. There was a scene where some of the main characters, the the, the family of Octavian, basically, Atia and um, her, her daughter, Julia, they are, there's a scene of them discussing what gift to send her great rival, Sevilia, who is basically um, at that point, I believe it, she's still Caesar's lover, I want to say. Maybe, maybe, I don't remember the timeline of the show. It's a bit muddled, but I remember they then they have this shocking scene where she says, ah, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to give my great rival. We're going to send her a slave because we feel bad. We're going to send her a slave carrying like a giant, and I think in the show, it was like a giant egg of gold, kind of like the eggs you would see for um, like the the novelty uh, Easter bunny eggs, you know, just like a big wrapped egg of gold. So it was like a solid gold egg. And then you have this like naked slave coming in. She's like, oh, she'll love these. These are perfect. And um, she says, yes, go to and be the gift be sent and uh and it, he leaves and then it's great i think a few scenes later you see the slave arrive and then you see Sevilla say ah yes okay who's this from now oh atia the julia oh okay great i don't need you go away or, or something like that and um so that's what my brain jumped to when you're talking about because it's one of those instances portrayed in in the tv show at least where She's trying to give her rival a gift, but not because she actually wants to build a friendship. It's like a don't hate me, I'm sorry, slash whatever gift. Um, yeah, I think it was like, or, or maybe it was something about like her pharaoh Caesar had been found out at Atia's um, instigation. She felt bad. She was like, well, haha, I wanted to make her forget this little brain fart. So here's a gift. Um, yeah, so just even the, the use of gifts in that sense is very interesting well it raises an interesting question because um gifts can certainly be weaponized right they're they're there are gifts that get sent to people who do not want to receive that gift right what they really don't want is the relationship it implies with the person who sent it that's what they don't want um, and that might that might be kind of what's going on here. Um, if it's a very grand gift, they might not want to feel like they're kind of subordinated because they've received something that's, you know, too great for them to really reciprocate. Um, in Roman society, you have these social hierarchies. Sometimes it's described as a society with, um, well, there's a concept that, that a generation ago was very, very widespread. We hear a little bit less about it now, but people would talk about patronage in Roman society. And if you ask what patronage is, it's very hard to get to pin people down on, on what exactly is meant. But it's the idea that there are, there are um, persons of high status and wealth and power and that they have relationships with people of somewhat lower status and lesser wealth and power who are kind of their, their um, 
they're kind of in in the orbit of the great man and they turn to him for help and they support him and it's a kind of a cabal there's not necessarily like blood relationships and it's not necessarily like master slave relationships where there's legal ownership but there's just sort of social relations um between people who are technically all independent but in fact um there there's these financial and other sorts of dependencies um but the idea is that those patronal relationships are are sustained by by exchange by the exchange of goods and services where they're all useful to one another but the main thing is that the rich person the guy on top can outgive anybody he can always give more than could ever be reciprocated by the by the recipient and so then the recipient always feels indebted the recipient is trapped he's captured because he can't it would be it would be impossible to walk away having received that gift and so then he's kind of trapped into the into a relationship with this with this great man whether he wants it or not that's now the social reality so giving is a way of creating social hierarchies that are actually potentially durable and can create these sort of ongoing relationships of subordination so i think if servilia if i were giving a a roman analysis of that scene i'd say what servilia does not want is to find herself somehow indebted for a rich gift and somehow obligated or subordinated to atia right she doesn't want she doesn't want that relationship so she rejects the gift so that's also very interesting interesting yeah i guess no i because these scenes you know they happen a bit quickly and so i don't I, I don't know if I'm able to pick up exactly on the nature. I just kind of go, oh, on its surface, okay, she's just re rejecting the gift out of spite because, you know, oh, she must hate her or she just, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, because there are people who, who definitely reject it because they don't want to feel indebted. And then there was a great, um, um, I think it was Anne Boleyn. Like famously, when Henry VIII was like courting her, he would send her all these jewels and gifts to try to woo her and make her want him. And I remember she she was famous for playing the game, where she'd be like, uh, she'd tell the maid, you know, who br brings in all these beautiful jewels, no, send it back. I am not worthy of this greatness. And of course, it makes him crazy. And then he's like, oh no, if jewels don't work, then how do I? What do I need to do to court this woman? And of course, it's it's yeah, it's it's pretty insane. So, <laughs> I I have no idea what the writers had in mind. I doubt that they were thinking about Roman patronal relationships, but but that was just what what that brought to mind for me. Is and it, it but even now, you know, if you reject a gift from someone, it may you know, <laughs> we we've seen this happen. I don't know. We had a little, a tiny scandal last fall during the race for the governorship of the state of Maryland. And the Republican candidate um, was filmed at one point uh, chatting with um, some people who approached him at a rally. 
who turned out to be um, members of a kind of a far-right Christian nationalist group. And they gave him some little something. I can't remember what. Um, and this created a little kerfluffle during the, um, during the gubernatorial campaign because it appeared as if this candidate was receiving a gift from that kind of person. And the candidate then said, no, I didn't. That isn't what happened. But again, the whole question was, did he or did he not receive the gift, right? Because presumably if he'd received it, that would appear to say, I want a relationship. I endorse um, I endorse what these people stand for. Um, so anyway, that, it was just a little ruffle, but, but the, the, the imagery of being offered a gift and whether you take it or don't take it can be very resonant now as a way of telegraphing what relationships you are choosing to have. So that would be a very contemporary example, I guess. Mm, okay. Okay. I mean, okay. I wish we had longer to go in because I could probably conjure hundreds more examples, but I know we don't have time for that. So I will, I will restrain myself and say, Oh darn, well, there's a lot more and I need to go watch more things. Cause now I kind of want to pick out if I can see all the different means of bartering or gift giving or like, some of these exchanges. Cause it's, it's so interesting to me in the meantime, I need to move forward. So I kind of end the interview portion of the podcast with three final questions. And the first of which is when you were either an undergrad or a grad student or both, did you attend office hours? I, I did on occasion. I believe that I generally went to office hours when I felt that I general, genuinely was confused or in difficulties and to see if, if there was help available. Um, I didn't take advantage of office hours in what I now think is actually a, a much more important sense, which is simply to build some kind of relationship or some acquaintance with, you know, with um, a kind of an amazing intellectual resource who is available to you in the university setting. Um, that's what I think the real advantage of office hours is, is, is to be able to just go and, and chat with, with, um, with a faculty member and see what they're thinking about. And, and what have you paid all that money for, right? To, to come to this institution, have access to these people. Um, but I, I did it in a very transactional way. I thought I shouldn't trouble anyone unless I had a concrete question. So that's a yes, but I went, but not for the right reasons. That's fine. I mean, at least you went, um, I guess. And you can you can answer this question from either your perspective as someone who went or as someone who is providing the office hours. Do you have a particular highlight or favorite memory of some conversation or just something that stands out about a really special anything that happened during an office hour? <laughs> well, I told you the story about the professor of quantum mechanics that happened during an office hour. So that's a real standout. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think on a, on a maybe more, more positive note. I remember one time visiting a, a, a professor a math professor again back when I was a, a, a science kind of major. I was taking a 
freshman, some kind of calculus course. And I remember I, I had a very quirky um, mathematics professor uh, and I went to his office hours with, with a friend one day. We kind of screwed up our courage and we went into office hours. And um, he, he, was a, he was a strange and quirky man in class. Um, but what I discovered in office hours was that being off the stage where he wasn't having to think about, this was the old days, writing out equations on the board in chalk, right? Because we didn't have PowerPoints back then. Um, he seemed to be much more at ease and, and he was quite a bit more accessible, um, uh, I would say um, it, it was possible. It was easier to ask questions and to have a discussion, just because I think he found it less. Right? He wasn't trying to deliver a lecture and trying to keep that in his head and have all those students out there. He was just chatting with a couple people, and so I remember finding that particular office hour visit. I don't remember whether it actually helped me with my question. But I remember being struck at how different my impression of that man was from meeting him in the setting with just one other student in his own office, as opposed to sitting in the classroom with 20 other people, beady eyes pointing at him while he's trying to write stuff on the board. Well, yeah, you get a different kind of persona in the classroom versus in the office hour, I would say. Definitely would agree. And then I, you, you kind of touched on it before, but I, I'll let you expand if you want to. If not, that's okay as well. But in your capacity as a professor now, if you had to give a 30-second to a minute-long elevator pitch to students for why it's important to go to office hours – what would you say? I, I, I try to say in a more coherent and compressed way, more or less what I just said. <laughs> I think um, the great thing about, about visiting a faculty um, or instructors, whether they're professors or even graduate students uh, in office hours, is um, just to learn about what makes them tick. Why are they in this community? You're in this community. You have a sense of why you're there. Why are they in this community? What brought them there? Um, and what are they taking away from it? And what are they bringing to it? Um, I think office hours helps you to understand, potentially helps you to understand the university as a community, as an intellectual and social entity, as well as just a kind of a mechanism for delivering you know, information and, and technique um, from people who have it and know the techniques to people who don't have or know them. Um, and then also the second point being that that all of these people are quite different in the relatively informal and unprogrammed setting of office hours from how they're going to be appearing in class where their brains are filled with how am I going to get through my lesson plan for today and get it all up and how do I manage the clock and, and, and the, the kind of, oh my God, I'm on and I'm performing very different kind of person in that setting from what you'll find if you're just coming in to chat with them. Couldn't agree more. It's a very special time that not, not a lot of people or not enough people take advantage of. And I went to my favorite professor's office hours because she had a chocolate drawer. So I could just get chocolates. I mean, I loved going to see her anyway because she was like the most wonderful lady, but also chocolates. 
tell you one more office hour story that you just reminded me, the drawer of chocolates. Um, there was a, an art history professor when I was an undergraduate who, who did uh, ancient Greek art, and she had uh, a, a small number of ancient Greek vessels, not like fancy red figure pots that ought to be in a museum, but just very courseware, almost industrial-like cups. Um, but from the 4th century BCE, they were like, you know, kitchenware. And she had them in a drawer. I mean, she bought them somewhere. They didn't cost much. They weren't decorated. They weren't painted. There was no prestige, but they were ancient cups. And she would pull out a bottle of Metoxa, this awful Greek brandy, and she would pour a drop or two of Metoxa in, in one of those cups and and um, and let her students just sip a little bit out of it. I think technically that was probably illegal because most of us only won at that point. But I remember, um, I remember Jody Maxman serving up a, a few drops of Metoxa in, in her ancient Greek cups out of the filing cabinet in her office. Um, that was a kind of a special. And I have to say, the fact that it was being drunk out of ancient Greek cups didn't make it taste one iota better. No, but at least the experience was like, it tasted terrible, but you could say you had it out of an ancient Greek cup. So it was at least a cool experience. Indeed. And now here I am talking about it as an office hour experience all these years later. Oh, that's one of the best ones I've heard. That's really unique. I don't like Metoxa, but it would have been cool to drink it out of an ancient drinking vessel, I will admit. But okay, well, at the end of each podcast, I ask if every guest will read a copy of Percy Shelley's wonderful Ozymandias poem. And then after reading it, if you could just give us your quick thoughts on, you know, why do people seem to like this poem? Is there something truly timeless about it i mean people speak very highly of it and and I'm, I'm i'm always curious about you know what is it about this poem that strikes people to their core when they read it this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom a mother figure or yourself as a mom find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. All right, here we go. Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said... Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk in shattered visage, lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's, um... Basically my favorite of all time, I think. It's a great poem for classicists in all kinds of ways. And I'm sure that's why you have you have classicists read this on, on, on your podcast. Yeah. So if you could just tell us, you know, what does this evoke for you? You know, do you think it's as important as people, you know, people place a lot of value on it and say it's one of the most influential poems? Do you agree with that? You know, does it, you know, wh- why, why do we think it's so cool, basically? Yeah, uh, so I, I, I'm not I, I'm not enough of an expert or even well enough acquainted with with um, English Romanticism to be able to like speak to the influence of the poem. But one thing that Shelley was obviously very interested in was kind of the aesthetic of the ruin, the aesthetic of the fragment, and that was very characteristic of the Romantic period. Um, uh, that, that, you know, that the, the, the piece of the great whole, um, all you have is this little piece. And then somehow out of that, you have to conjure that whole. There is a way that, that that's what we're all doing in classics. We have these tiny little fragments of texts, uh, of cultural information. And we're always trying to spin that up into a picture of a whole society. Um, but I think there's more to Ozymandias, which is it's not just a fragment, but it's it's a fragment of um, of a monumental work, right? Uh, that is um, that that is some very ancient person's, you know, assertion of their power and dominance and immortality, and in a weird way, it worked. Because here's the traveler who's read it and remembers it, right? So, so did Ozymandias, maybe Ozymandias gets the last laugh, right? He, he really did remind people that he existed. But, but the irony is, you know, see my works, read my works in despair. 
you know, and it's it's shattered and lying on the sand, and there's nothing else except those words. Um, so there's nothing to despair about. Um, but I suppose it, this is very banal, but it really makes you reflect on the ravages of deep time on human creations, right? So we all are very much preoccupied with our own lives and our own projects and day to day and, um, how did I do on this? And, you know, is, is, is this a, I don't know how many of us are preoccupied with our legacy, but many of us in different kinds of ways are, I think. And this is a reminder that, you know, go out a few millennia and really, I mean, really, but I still think maybe Ozymandias gets the last laugh. We're laughing as it were at, at, at the, at the gigantic arrogance of his claim that is completely negated by the context in which we find it. But yet, you know, he attempted to monumentalize himself. And if that just means remember my name, remember I existed. Hi guys. You know, basically somebody waving a hand from the deep past and saying, hi guys. Well, it worked. He waved his little hand. The traveler saw it. The traveler told Shelley, and Shelley told us. So maybe it goes both ways. I'm, I this is a completely new take. So I'm hoping that there might be some truth in it then, because I mean, I suppose, yeah. When I normally look at it, you know, I'm like, okay, well, definitely thoughts on monumentality. Shelley was writing this about a giant statue of Ramesses II, which was uncovered and was on its way to be housed in the British Museum in, in the 1800s when when he was writing. And so he was very inspired by this. And so I uh, just so as readers now, yeah, if we know, oh, okay, well, it's written about a big statue of Ramesses II and his empire is gone. Um, that could mean one thing, but also you're right. I mean, okay, monumental statues, they get hidden in the sand and they can get lost or broken, but we still find the pieces. We can still reassemble them with modern technology. And so they will be remembered because now we put them up in museums and we do look at them and we do go, oh, look at this great wonder. It's broken. But it's a great ancient wonder. So there, there could be a lot of truth in what you had to say. Asimandias is nobody, right? But I kind of like to think that he would say, well, darn, I'm sorry my empire fell. But I think it's great that three millennia from now, people still know who I was. That's not so bad. Exactly. Although, and then there is the political dimension of when Shelley was writing. I mean... The way I normally look at this poem is, you know, oh, this is a memento mori. It's a, it's, it's, it's a remember that reminder that we will die, and it's, it's, it's all very, um, it's all very political when you look at it that way. I've found, but you know, it's like, oh, okay, it's transient. You know, it's a statement on the ephemeral nature of political power because this man did think his empire would still be standing you know, into eternity and it's clearly not. So you're kind of like, okay, I don't know what you're thinking, whether it was like my empire will be there. So they'll know me or my empire could fall and they'll still know me. We have no idea, which makes it super, super fascinating. But because of the political implications of it, the last question I ask all my guests to think about, and it's one of my favorite questions because the answers are always so different is 
if we consider the poem from the slightly more political side of when he was writing and this nature of power and lasting monumentality, um, if you think about our contemporary society right now, do we have like a modern equivalent of Ozymandias, like something that we think is so great and amazing and then realistically future humans Will they look at that thing and say, yeah, we're right. It's amazing. Or will they look back and say, oh, y'all were crazy. Like, this is so stupid and ridiculous. Why did you think that was amazing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's funny. It, it, you have to be a futurist to try to, to try to guess what might, you know, what, what might, um, you know, in, in say thousands of years, assuming there's still people around on a planet that's inhabitable and all those sorts of things, right? Um, you know, what would they make of this particular age? Um, I think from a large enough distance, the book, just the, 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 the creation of, of the um, codex style book still looks like a pretty world beating technology. <laughs> it's it was a good one and it's still going strong. Uh, it's not an invention of our age. But um, I was thinking just more broadly about the impact humans have had on, on the earth um, in this era you know, in the last 200 years, the human population on Earth has has gone from probably under a billion to aiming up toward eight and a half to nine billion before it peaks. And um, just the amount of human construction, human forming of the Earth and of Earth materials into forms that humans use. So Ozymandias, you know, carved stone, that's an example of that. But I'm thinking of, you know, the the millions of, of um, you know, residential skyscrapers in the giant Chinese and Indian cities and, and um, Western cities. You know, what will be the fate of all that material um will we disassemble it and build you know more modern buildings in due course of a different sort will we have a catastrophe and they'll you know with great abandonment and destruction and maybe eventually they all just fall down and go into a layer uh, and, you know, and the sands blow in and archaeologists of the future, you know, excavate Shanghai and, and they find that stratigraphy. I mean, just imagine what that what that layer will look like, that destruction layer. Go out. Let's go out 50 million years. Right. By the time it's it's uh, it's actually, uh, you know, geological line in the geology of the earth. And just think of the weird chemical signatures. Right. All all of our iPhones with their strange um, rare earth elements, they're going to be like, how did like all of this all of these weird elements appear all over the world in this little layer. All at, what happened? Maybe a meteor impact. No, I suspect they'd still be able to tell that it was the activity of some sort of society. But, but I guess where I was going with that is the idea that what a future age might find amazing is just the magnitude of the production of material 
at this moment of peak human population. Because we're going to come down off this peak at some point, and I hope we hit a nice glide path and that we don't come down off it like, you know, by way of a famine or nuclear war that kills billions of people. But sooner or later, we're going to hit peak population. It's going to start declining. And I just, I wonder what the future world will think of the infrastructure we built to sustain the population of the size we have now. Yeah, very, very interesting thoughts. I mean, it's it's not an easy question, nor is it meant to be, because there's so many different ways, different ideas that we can sort of kick around. And yeah, what are future humans going to think? What are they going to do? Um, how are they going to feel? All these things that we can't possibly know. Another thing about being a classicist, I know we're over time, but but you 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 think about deep time. You know, I reflect often on millennia, and I I, I can't even uh, I can't begin to imagine what the world will be like two millennia from now. I can't begin to imagine. Um. And, you know, I'm sitting here reading Horace. Actually, I'm reading Horace with students this semester. He died at age 56. And here we are still reading him, 2,000 years. I just turned 56. I don't think people are going to be reading me in 2,000 years. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but I love my you don't know that. <laughs> um, they could pick up your book in 2,000 years and say, this is a fantastic book. Well, in, in contrast to Ozymandias, Horace ends his odes with, I have built a monument more lasting than bronze and, um, and higher than the settings of the pyramids. Actually, maybe, yeah, well, the pyramids are still with us. A lot of ancient bronze has been melted down. He may be right. He could be. Well, I'd like to, well, I won't be alive to see it, but I hope future generations can, you know, look back at, at, at the writings that we have from the past and say, actually, they were right or something to that effect. I don't know. Is there a classicist version of Eureka? Cause I feel like Eureka is way too scientific when you figure something out really cool. Like, I feel like classicists need a, a cool word that's not Eureka. Eureka is a very beautiful story of Eureka, right? It was Archimedes in the bathtub, and he discovered displacement. And Eureka is ancient Greek, right? Heureka, I have found it, right? So Eureka is classics. Um, so my theory is, if you want to live forever, if you want to be immortal, um, carve your name on a stone. That's a proven technology. Um, could be a headstone if you die. Um, I love little Roman grave altars. I think they're fantastic. So make a little portrait of yourself on the stone as well. But I, I bet if we're here in 2000 years, there will be a lot of information about people derived from their gravestones because that's really durable material. It's going to stick around. Well, they'll definitely last longer than people's iPhones because all those things have to do is die. The battery needs to just go kaput and then you cannot access any of the stuff that you could carve on a stone and... Well, that should be there unless I suppose the stone is like blown to smithereens somehow. But we're going to hope that they survive. Metals are so good because they, they can corrode or somebody will melt them down for some other purpose. Once you've carved a stone, it, it, nobody, nobody else is going to mess with it. They're not going to reuse it. It's easier to just get a new stone, right? Um, 
So that's that's what I'd say. Go go for the thing, like Ozymandias. He had something going. He he was onto the right idea. Yeah, I will I will say. And and if anyone wants to disagree, then uh, send us send us why you disagree. Um, so I kind of lied. There's actually one more question I'm going to ask you, and that is how can people or where can people find you if they want to email you or ask you questions or follow your work? Um, so um, I, I have an email address. If you uh, if you go to my um, web page, I'm very easy to find at Johns Hopkins in the classics department. And my email is there. There's some contact information. There's a phone number that comes to my office that I don't think I don't think that phone is actually wrong in about five years. I'm not even sure I know the number anymore. <laughs> it used to be people made like they would call you in your office. And I, it just that never happens anymore. But I, I would say people are free to email me. I also I mean, Many people have an like an academia.edu account. I have to say, in in all um, in all discretion, uh, the whole academia.edu kind of interface and website and the way they're pushing their products kind of drives me bonkers. So I have some papers posted just within Hopkins, and if you visit my website, I have some academic papers up there. It, uh, if people are interested in them, but but they're even more boring. So that's fine. You know what? We will do our best to link some of this contact stuff in your show notes. So if people want to email you questions or maybe you know talk about what they want to study, then they will be able to do that. Um, so we will make sure everything is there. And I want to thank you one more time for joining me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Likewise, and thanks for letting me interview you at the beginning, actually. Again, I, I always want to hear more about, about people who are, you know, doing more public-facing um, uh, work with, with uh, classical um, information and classical materials. And, and that just seeing what that world really looks like is very helpful to me. So thank you for that. Glad I was able to help. Yeah. It's uh, it's been it's been fun, and uh, I hope to have you back on the the podcast uh, in the future. I don't know what for yet, but uh, we'll find something. All right, there's there's an awful lot of good classicists out there to interview. You probably barely scratched the surface. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.